Welcome to Millennium Live, a digital diary podcast. Hi, everybody. It's Alex Sobel again, co-founder of the Millennium Alliance. Very excited to be doing this week's podcast edition with Brad Wilson, who not only is the CEO emeritus of Blue Cross Blue Shield of North Carolina, he's done a lot of great things in his career and in his life which is one of the reasons why I wanted to get a chance to talk to him and understand a little bit more about not just his background and what he what he achieved in his career, but also what his opinion on some things that are going on right now in regards to current events as it relates potentially to the COVID-19 pandemic and how the country is going to get back on its feet. For those of you who um, have been members of ours for a while now, you might remember Brad was the keynote speaker of our healthcare payers event in Dallas in May of 2019. So I'm really happy that we've kept in touch with him. And I think it's the perfect time to bring him uh, into the fold and talk to him about some of the big issues in healthcare today and for us to learn a little bit more about him. So Brad is here. I want to say, Brad, welcome. Thanks so much for joining us. I've been looking forward to talking to you. Oh, great. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Appreciate it. You got it. You got it. So just for our listeners and for me as well, as I alluded to before, you've had a distinguished career not just in healthcare, but you've done a number of things that I think a lot of people would love to know kind of more about your experiences in certain roles and how you ended up running Blue Cross Blue Shield of North Carolina, how that all came to fruition. But more so, I'm curious before we get to that, I wanted to learn a little bit more about you and where you're from and kind of where you grew up and kind of talk to you more about the early stages of your life that led you. I saw you were an undergrad at Appalachian State and I know you furthered your education, but I'm curious to know kind of what your upbringing was like, and do you feel like pre-Appalachian State, you had some of your worldview created for you already? You kind of knew what you wanted to do or kind of where you wanted to lead your life, or did that not necessarily form until you got into college? Or So yeah, I wanted you to take us, take us to the beginning if you can. Uh, certainly. Well, again, thank you for the opportunity. Well, I'm a native North Carolinian. I was born and raised in North Carolina and uh, educated uh, in North Carolina. But I'll give you the abridged version and then let you guide the conversation. But I was actually born in Boone, North Carolina, which is where Appalachian State is. Uh, the, my paternal and maternal heritage goes back as far as I can find. And I've been doing a lot of work in that regard. In that northwestern corner of North Carolina, I was a first-generation college student. My father began his uh, career and uh, lifelong career in law enforcement as a uh, as a state trooper here in North Carolina. I uh, actually met my mother uh, at the hospital in Boone uh, where she was a nurse and he was actually an ambulance driver at the time. So uh, from that uh, marriage uh, and his career in law enforcement, I've lived all over North Carolina. By the time I was 13, when we moved to Raleigh, the capital city, uh, that was the seventh move that we had made in my first 13 years. So I grew up all over North Carolina and uh, graduated from high school in Raleigh in 1971. So North Carolina was still very much a rural state, even with a couple of spots of uh, metropolitanism, primarily Charlotte and, and Raleigh, during my uh, growing up. I then went to Appalachian State as an undergraduate. Actually, my aspiration was to go to Duke, but it was a little pricey uh, <laughs> on a state employee salary. Was Duke, was Duke at that time as competitive to get into as it is now? Was it considered as good of a school as it is considered now? It was, it was emerging. It was competitive to get into Duke because they did you know, have a national following or a national ap application pool as against 
more regional and state-centric uh, schools. Sure. But uh, if Duke really emerged to the place it is today under the leadership of former Governor Terry Sanford, who was coming into the leadership role during that period of time. But it was a good choice. Uh, I received a great education at Appalachian State. I knew when I went to undergraduate school that I wanted to be a lawyer. And my destination was Wake Forest Law School. I was fortunate enough to arrive there and emerge uh, as a practicing attorney in my first 14 years of my career and uh, practice law in the western part of the state in in a town called Lenore which is in the Blue Ridge Mountain foothills of the Blue Ridge. When I arrived, I was the third of three lawyers. And when I left, I was uh, one of five. Um, I moved from that role uh, to become general counsel to Governor uh, James B. Hunt of North Carolina as he began his third term in 1993. He had been governor for eight years, out for eight, and then ran again and was fortunate enough to move into his administration in a senior role and I like to say it's the best job I ever had. I had never worked any harder than I worked in that role and made the least amount of money that I'd made since uh, I, I got out of law school. But it was a very rewarding and enriching experience. I wanted to ask you, Brad. So after, sure. after Wake Forest, you went into private practice? For I did, yes. Mm-hmm. And, what, and what kind of law did you practice? Well, being in a smaller town, uh, the county that I practiced in had about 72,000 people. You did a little bit of everything which was actually what I aspired to do right out of the gate. But by the time I transitioned from the law practice into government service, both the discipline of the practice of law and the expertise required, it required you to specialize. So with five lawyers, we, we did that. I primarily did uh, real estate, commercial transactions. I represented a number of municipalities. I represented the local school board. Uh, mostly on the civil side. I did criminal work early on and domestic work early on, which was exactly why I went to a smaller town, a smaller firm. I wanted to do it all. Sure. Uh, but but as, I, as, as the firm grew and uh, we had to become more and more efficient, we all found our niches, uh, but it was a pretty broad menu even all the way to the end. Did you, um, in your years of private practice, did you get any exposure specifically to big cases that were related to healthcare? No which is an interesting thing that I'll come back to uh, when I talk about going to Blue Cross. When I went there, I had uh, essentially no healthcare experience or no big corporate in-house experience, which I found curious as I was going through the interview process and kept moving through, I kept scratching my head. Well, I wonder what's my competitive advantage because I don't recognize it necessarily. Uh, Being in the government sector, certainly, uh, that's where my... Yeah, where my knowledge began to broaden and deepen, dealing with Medicare in particular and all the issues of public health that, uh, you know, come through state government. So you're in private practice and then you venture off into government. Was was going into public service something that you you had thought about doing previously to being exposed to it? How did that and how did that opportunity to work for the governor come about? I've always been interested in politics, Uh, even in elementary school. And in fact, to get to your earlier question to make a specific point, my interest in politics, my interest in uh, the law emerged out of uh, my reading that started as early as the third grade. I read a lot of biographies of lots and lots of people. And I noted that many of them uh, who made a material difference in improving the world uh, and the country happened to be lawyers. And so I latched on to that idea and the concept of public service. My parents instilled in me a real notion and idea uh, that uh, for those who much is given, much is asked and 
So I've always enjoyed public service and the whole uh, political arena, knowing and believing that government is an instrument for positive impact in people's lives and to right wrongs. So that's a common thread that runs all the way through. So as a result, as I matured uh, both in age and education and experience, I was, I was always actively engaged in the political life of North Carolina, not sure. as a candidate, but as a volunteer and et cetera, et cetera. So when I first began to practice law, Governor Hunt was in his second term, literally his second term in, uh, in 1980. And I came to know him during that experience and actually served on a, the Board of Transportation here in North Carolina as a gubernatorial appointee. So it was from that, uh, then he went out of office in 84, he lost the Senate race to Jesse Helms, and he went into private practice. And then we uh, reconnected as he was beginning to run for the third term. The point that I would leave you with, and specifically to your, your question, this appetite for public service and viewing the political, being engaged in the political uh, arena, if you will, in North Carolina, fueled uh, both relationships, built relationships, broadened education, um, you became known. And the opportunity kind of fell out of the sky for me to work in the Hunt administration. And as my law part, one of my law partners said at the time when I was telling them about it, it's the best job that a lawyer who enjoys politics could ever have being general counsel to a governor. And he was indeed right. And my education continued. So I, I'm just curious, because as someone who's, who's very into politics myself, is the main role for whether it's general counsel for a governor or even a sitting president or whatever, whatever political role, is it when you're when you're working for the governor, you're really working for the state. Right. 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 Yes. There's, no, there's no real difference between the individual person in the governor's seat versus the state. It's really the same thing. If the state's being right. sued for something or right. there's litigation, you're just you're the state's lawyers, essentially. Is that right? Well, you work technically the state's lawyers or the, is the attorney general and all that work under him or her. Yes. However, yes, you're at that table. You're part of that conversation. You are actively involved in both strategy as well as overseeing the litigation. You don't walk into the courtroom as general counsel to a governor and advocate. I guess that's possible. That's the attorney general's role. But the coordination of the position and the defense or the advocacy for the state is very critical. And one of my jobs was to talk to my counterpart, the attorney general, and then their chief assistant on a regular basis about litigation that was pending. Or, for example, at the time the Governor Hunt came in in 92, the North Carolina prison system was under a federal supervision. So what's that all about and what's left to do and how do we get out from under that and on and on and on. The key point for me was that having that role and that job, it could be as big or as little as A, you wanted it to be and how hard you wanted to work and the places that you could show up and B, of course, what the governor assigned you to do. So during the time I was with him, the job description was I was, oper I was the leader of the legal office of the governor and you know judicial appointments and all kinds of things like that. When I left, I was not only doing that, but I was the lead legislative counsel. So I was doing the lobbying with the team right. in the legislature. And I was a, a, a interim cabinet secretary. I was secretary of crime control and public safety. So essentially had three unique but overlapping roles that, again, was very exciting, but it was also very exhausting because it no one worked any harder than Governor Hunt and you needed to do the same. So it gives you a calling card to engage in 
a diverse set of issues uh, being in that particular role. And as uh, the governor and his other colleagues gain confidence, you get different assignments. I'm sure. I've got to ask you, I was going to save this for later in our in our interview, getting the exposure that you did both in the private sector and then in the public sector, and then even in general, you know, obviously working, uh, running an insurance uh, organization as big as BCBS of North Carolina. Do you ever get the urge to run for public office, either at the state or at the federal level? Do you ever get the itch that you had the right experience, you had the right temperament, and you had the right intentions? Do you ever get the, I guess, the itch to run for anything? Well, it's always been an interest and top of mind, and I have been flattered and complimented over my career that many times people have come calling and saying, you should do, or won't you think about this? Sure. However, that's a, that's a big decision. It's important. And of course, who wouldn't want to be governor or United States senator? However, there are a variety of ways where you can be as impactful, if not more so, not being on the ballot. You also have an unfortunate beneficiary of a, of a wonderful spouse and a great family. You have commitments to them that need to be fulfilled. So the point is, you put all of those factors into a blender. And as we all know, timing is everything in politics. And you make the best decision for the endeavor and your family and your professional circumstance that you think that you should. And so as a result of that, I've come up to the line a couple of times made the decision, probably not the right time or the right role. Sure. And quite frankly, I have no regrets. There was always an opportunity thereafter to continue to make a meaningful impact somehow, some way. It's interesting to hear because I think with your experience and with your reputation, I think the argument could have been made, you could have made a deep run at something, whether it be in the state or who knows, maybe, you know, at the federal level as well, because especially nowadays, we, we need good people in government. So comforting to hear that, you know, a lot of impact can be made, not just in those positions. You can get a lot done working maybe on the outside, sort of looking in. So it's good that, you know, you, it sounds like you're, you're involved where you think you can, you can make the biggest difference, which is great. Going back to your work with the governor, and then after, after that is when you transitioned into a general counsel role. That's, that's how it started at Blue Cross. That's correct, right. 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 After uh, yeah, serving in the governor's office for about three years, this opportunity came my way to interview or apply for the general counsel role at Blue Cross Blue Shield of North Carolina. They were going through a leadership transition. A new CEO had come in about 18 months prior. And um, after saying no twice, I decided to participate in the search process, quite frankly, uh, not expecting to get the job and really not wanting it because I was enjoying what I was doing. But I knew that I would transition out of that job at some point, And I was got to think about what's next. Sure. So the journey began. I did go through the search process and as much to my surprise, received an offer. And those kind of roles do not come around very often. And uh, I talked to Governor Hunt about it, received his blessing to leave. If I hadn't, I would have stayed. Mm-hmm. But he saw that it was a it was such a wonderful opportunity where I could continue to serve and gain experience uh, that I became general counsel at Blue Cross Blue Shield in North Carolina, effect essentially December 15th of 95. So beginning of 96 is when I started my career there. Cool. I'm going to fast forward to 2010 because that's when you took over as CEO. The reason why that to me is, is an interesting year is because that's the year that the ACA gets rolled out. So being a politically astute myself, that was probably a very interesting time 
to be running a healthcare insurance organization, one with a brand as distinguished as Blue Cross Blue Shield. So I'm very curious about, about that particular time, your beginning, your beginning time as CEO there. When you were getting ready to, I guess, interview for the CEO role, how, how far before the ACA rollout did the even idea for you to take on the CEO role come about? Well, I would, again, the beneficiary of a wonderful predecessor, his name's Bob Gretchen. He and others supported me in gaining experience across the company from 1996 into the future. Bob was not the CEO who hired me. He replaced the CEO who did and came around 2000. And so, quite frankly, I never had a fault in my entire life or career being CEO of anything, (laughs) uh, particularly of a healthcare company. But once I got there and began to gain experience, and the CEO role was my fourth distinct role within the company over that period of time, and as the board began to consider the transition post Bob's retirement, it was suggested that I would be an attractive candidate. So, of course, again, kind of like the opportunity to go from the governor's office to general counsel, uh, my high school football coach told us, luck is when preparation meets opportunity. So I found myself to be lucky yet again that I'd had this wonderful preparation. And here was an opportunity that and it was going to um, uh, they were may align that I would be given this uh, chance to be CEO in a very important aspect of American life. Yes, it's a business, but healthcare is far more than a business. In mm-hmm. fact, I'd always say, people would say, what kind of business are y'all in? We're in the people business. Mm-hmm. That's what we were doing. So I was grateful for the opportunity to uh, go through the search and fortunate enough to be named CEO February 1 of 2010. The ACA passed March 23rd of 2010. And the revolution that was already underway in healthcare was accelerated mm-hmm. by the enactment of the ACA. The great adventure began. So it's such an interesting time to, to, take over, to take over the company because the healthcare industry was being, re, it was being retooled. It was being reworked. And, you know, over the course of the last decade, there's been a lot of proponents and not proponents of the ACA. It's it impacted consumers differently. It impacts businesses differently. You coming into the CEO role, you have the, you're, you're in the position on February 1st. You can see coming down, was it coming down the road? that the ACA is gonna be passed. Did, did your company wrap their arms around the idea of, or did they see the, the long-term benefit of what the law could do? Was your company involved in the discussions when the law was being built? Because I know a lot of insurance companies were brought in to kind of have a piece or to talk about the law and you know talk about the concerns and what, they, what, what advice they had for the law. How involved was BCBS of North Carolina in the run-up to the actual passing of the law and then what were your thoughts taking over as CEO as the best way to approach the business with such a big change in the industry taking place? Sure. Well, there's, there's a lot there. Let me start with saying, yes, our, our company was always engaged in the public conversation of issues affecting healthcare and the lives of people at the state and federal level. We had a highly skilled and talented government affairs team that reported to me. I think one of the reasons I was hired Uh, when I was hired, was the fact that I knew North Carolina and I had a deep and broad civic engagement that included political engagement. So absolutely. Uh, And we, if we weren't invited uh, to be in the room, uh, we were knocking on the door uh, Mm -hmm. to get in the room. 
in, to use that uh, uh, metaphor. So yes, our voice was consistent and persistent uh, throughout the formulation of the legislation, working through the process. Uh, this is a democracy and it works, but you have to work at it. Mm -hmm. And so meeting with our members of Congress and uh, Senator Hagan, who was a law school classmate of mine, we were talking about both the good as well as the things that were within the ACA that we thought would be very challenging. But once it was enacted and uh, we uh, had participated in that, it was the law. And I can't tell you how many speeches that I made even before becoming CEO and after. It's the law until it's not. So what we're going to do in North Carolina, we're going to embrace it. We are going to deploy it and we're going to make it work the best we possibly can. There was never any question in my mind that that was the right path. Mm -hmm. I was surprised at how, at how many colleagues that I had around and about who uh, did not look at it that way, that it was about waiting till the next election and then something would happen and it would maybe go away. But we put our heads down and shoulder to the wheel and began to figure out how to make a 2,400 page piece of legislation with subsequently 40 to 60,000 pages of regulation work. It was hard. It was messy. It was not perfect. Any, any component, now I'm not talking about the law, I'm talking about the process. Sure. We made, we made wise decisions and we made less than wise decisions in the implementation, but we were always in the room reporting to the administration what was working well, what wasn't working well, and providing suggestions as to what should change or be done or how best to optimize the impact of this, what I think is one of the most important pieces of legislation that's ever been passed. Mm -hmm. It rivals the Civil Rights Act or the Social Security Act or Medicare and Medicaid. Uh, the list goes on and on. Uh, and so uh, we worked hard and I'll let you frame the conversation, but we, we, we did it. Yeah. Uh, and we lost a lot of money the first two years. Our board was supportive and didn't blink. It would have been easy. In fact, the business calculation on economics was done carefully every year. It would have been easy to say, this is too hard. We've lost too much money. We're going to quit. But I'm not a quitter, and nor were the people that I was working with. And we just stayed at it, and it turned and became not only successful, but uh, also uh, appropriately profitable for the organization and continues to be so today. But as I close and turn, turn it back to you for a second, I really want to stress this point. Yes, it was about economics. But in 2016, when every virtually every competitor left North Carolina, if we had not stayed in the program, we Blue Cross Blue Shield of North Carolina, there would not have been an ACA program in North Carolina. We were the only company from day one to have ACA products in every county, all 100 counties in North Carolina. And what we kept seeing in our line of sight were the faces of North Carolinians who were now dependent on this program by 2016 and others who needed it. What would they do if we quit? They would be uninsured. So as a result of us sticking with it, with a lot of hard work, again, that next year, over 600,000 North Carolinians had coverage under the ACA. Yeah. And if we had quit, that means there would have been 600,000 plus North Carolinians who were uninsured. 
And so the leadership point that I would leave you with is know your purpose. Why are you doing what you're doing? And I would also pivot back to the point that you asked me about running for office versus other ways to serve. Yeah. I'm not so sure if I had been the junior or senior senator from North Carolina that I would have been able to do what I was able to do with a team. It was not about me. It was about a team of people that actually put something on the ground that survived and continues to serve hundreds of thousands of North Carolinians today as we did in that environment. So it is about what leadership role can you fulfill and what is it that you can really do on the ground that makes a difference in real people's lives in a a perpetual and persistent way. That's a philosophy that then gets translated into execution. So do I regret not being the senior senator of North Carolina? Well, of course, who wouldn't want to be? (laughs) That's a lot, and you can do a lot there. I have no regret that that was not the path that I chose or may have been available. And I'm grateful for the opportunity to have had a small part in the execution and implementation of a program like the ACA. Sure. I would bet anything. They may not know the role that specifically you and your team played in making sure that a lot of people in the state were covered, were covered that weren't previously because of the law and because of the, the, the fact that you guys didn't quit. But it must be nice going to sleep at night knowing that the work that you guys did covered, because you guys you guys were in every county across the state by the end of it, right? right? Oh, yeah. Right, right from day one, we designed products and had, of course, we were the largest health insurer in North Carolina. We have historically. Mm-hmm. So that's just a fact. And so we felt this uh, particular duty, responsibility to the state, to the people of the state, since we are blessed, we're fortunate enough to be the largest, that it was our job to figure this out as hard as it may be. Again, it would have been easy. Uh, everyone would have understood it because on 200 and basically 235,000 customers, which was our ACA population the first two years, it turned the entire balance sheet of the company into the red. Mm -hmm. I mean, we lost $450 million over two years. And when you stand in front of a board and say, well, let me tell you, we've invested in 230,000 people out of 3.9 million, and we're losing over two years have lost $450 million. If you're just paying attention to the math, the logic says you need to stop that. And Pay attention to the rest of your business mm-hmm. and make sure that it's going to remain healthy for everyone. Well, it did. That's why you have reserves. And we don't have time to get into the, you know, the arithmetic of, of insurance. But that's why you have reserves. And the board said, and we said, we recommend that we continue on. And the board to unanimously said that's the right thing to do. But get it, get it fixed. Get, make sure it's working. And we did. And um, now... To your point, uh, yes, it's rewarding to know that you had a part of that teamwork. That's great. That's a big part. That's a great story. Just to finish up on the on the ACA, in layman's terms, in, in easy to understand terms, the ACA was basically the goal was obviously to get as many people covered as they can, as you can. Try not to burden the insurance companies with people that historically can't afford insurance by helping. In the beginning, the the, the federal government was helping subsidize. They were, they, were, they were subsidizing 100% of the premiums. I always wonder, I know everything's very political now, right? And it's been that way for, I don't know, maybe the last decade. 
I, I can never get my head around how any governor, regardless of what party they were, what they thought of a president, if they could get so many of their constituents and so many of their citizens covered and not have to pay any part of the bill from their state revenues. I never understood why half the country's governors, I don't know if that's the number, but close to half the country's governors turned it down because it seemed like such a win-win for everybody. And it gave states the time to get used to the law while they were having it paid for. I just remember that time period, you know, being younger than I am now, just not understanding, like, was I missing something? Did I not see something? Because for the first few years of the ACA rollout, the federal government was footing the bill for their for states to help subsidize these payments for people that couldn't afford insurance. So I just wonder if you have any thought on that. Was it was it just purely political or was there was there any logic to not accepting that funding? In my view, it was more about politics than policy. <laughs> in many conversations over my entire career, uh, when you're in a room talking about a piece of legislation and all of a sudden the, the conversation is entirely logical, it's completely rational. Yeah. I would point out we are now on the verge of making a mistake, thinking that the process in which we are about to engage that would yield some result on this legislation is going to be logical and rational. It's not. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think it was more about politics than policy. And I want to be clear, the ACA was really health insurance finance reform. Yes. And, And so that's a that's an important subject and a noble cause, but it's more complicated than that. It was about how are we going to, if we move people into the system, which is, should, be, should be done, how are we going to pay for it? And there were lots of provisions of the law and subsequent regulations that were counter to each other. So while you were pushing here, you were pulling on the other side and there were lots and lots of unintended consequences. One of the differences in my view and I'm a history guy, I was a history major. Me too. If you, if you, okay, so you well know, if you look at any major piece of legislation that's ever been enacted in the country, shortly thereafter, there's been a pretty meaningful period of reform the reform, revise the reform, sure. thoughtful conversations. Yes, it's fraught with fights. Look at Medicare and Medicaid. And, it, and that happened shortly after, or within a reasonable period of time after the enactment, and some of it continues today. What didn't happen in the ACA was that. It was enacted and then fueled by what I think is primarily political considerations. There was a big push to make sure that it didn't work, to build an appetite to repeal it all, rather than focusing on, okay, well, you know, this is working pretty well. So let's let it go and see how it works out. Uh Uh-oh, we now recognize this is not working well at all. So let's go fix it. Sure. There, There was no appetite to go fix it because by not fixing it, it didn't work as well as it should. And it fueled the political argument, see, it should be repealed. And we never had a really good opportunity to let it evolve mm-hmm. through the democratic and political process, have all the hot, hot debates we want, but then at the end of the day, move the needle down the road. So that that's one of the uniquities, I think, of the ACA versus Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, pick your, pick your favorite subject. And, and that still continues to a large measure today. Although I will ask you, when was the last time you heard anybody talking loudly through a microphone about let's repeal the ACA other than in the heat of a political moment? Has there been any 
substantive attempt to do so? I mean, you know, over the last two or three, four years after uh, after Donald Trump won the election, there was all this excitement from people that wanted him to win the election, that they were going to squash the ACA. But what I never understood is just trying to be like a, a, a neutral observer, trying just to like think about what both sides are saying is like, well, where, what, what's the other idea? Because I think what, what you said was very interesting. And I think too many people don't realize that it really was healthcare finance reform is really what it was. And I know many on the far left of the Democratic Party were upset that the law wasn't, and I wanna ask you about single payer, they didn't just go full single payer, right? right? And I remember remember Barack Obama saying, you know, it's not like I became president and this is the first days of the country. If it was the first days of the country, I would say we should enact a single payer plan because we could do it, but healthcare makes up 20 to 25% of GDP or, Whatever the whatever the numbers are, and a lot of people like their private insurance because one 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 interesting debate I get into with people about the ACA is I think of the ACA in kind of two two ways. One is is that not a lot of attention gets put on about the protections the ACA, the ACA provided for consumers, right? Everybody loves those protections. If you're someone who if you're in the other political party, meaning the party that didn't pass the law you're not really talking about all the good protections the ACA afforded people that everybody benefits from, whether it's women or people from pre, with pre-existing conditions or, you know, obviously just making sure that you're protected. But it's all about the fact that it, it's you, you shouldn't be forced to buy insurance or they talk about, it's, there's a whole bunch of things they talk to kind of confuse the conversation. But like I said before, no one talks about the things that are good about the affordable character. It was always about for six, six seven years, how do we kill this thing? How do we kill this thing? But you never saw a better version of it. And, well, that's right. And there were, and there were, and I remember reading stuff in Congress that I think what you were alluding to before is a little bit. You know, if you break something, you can prove it doesn't work. And I remember, and I remember reading something about how there were loopholes in the law years later after it was passed, where Congress could underfund the subsidies that were meant for insurance companies. Right. Which then in turn, well, obviously insurance companies can't pick up all that cost. So then right. the, the consumers go to the marketplace and they see that their deductibles are so high, but you know, not enough people way pay attention to how that works. And then that's how you build up more cynicism for the law, where, like you said, from a financial perspective, this, the healthcare system didn't change much. You still, could, you still could get private insurance. You had more protection now. And there was more people coming into the pool, which is what we wanted to lower, obviously, healthcare costs. And just to create a system that was more equitable for everybody. So I, I give you a lot of credit because I can only imagine, and it sounds like your board of directors was very, they were very sincere and very much with you, with your vision, which, which thank God. But I got to think a lot of healthcare insurance CEOs were looking at their balance sheets and looking at the political pressure and then looking at the short term pain that they were going to take. And I don't know, that had to be a scary moment for, for people running businesses like that. Of course. Well, I think to start on your last point, the fact that all the major competitors that we had in the ACA environment in North Carolina left, why did they leave? Well, the press releases that that Aetna and United issued said, we're losing too much money. We can't stand it. Yep. Okay. I, I don't, that's not a criticism. People hired to make judgments every day about what's in the best interest of their organization, but it, it proves your point. Another point that I would make, uh, which is an interesting, we could spend a lot of time. There's a book in here somewhere that maybe I'll get around to writing one of these days, but yeah, I love that. Um, 
one reason that we, Blue Cross Blue Shield of North Carolina and other insurers were in the red in the first two years is that subsidy that the government had promised to pay didn't come. Not in the first two years. No, no. And or a little bit did. I think the first year, if I remember correctly, we got paid 12 percent of what we were owed. Yeah. And the next year was something nominal again. Oh, so see, I didn't know that. Right. So in otherwise, in other words, over two years, Lou, we lost 450. Well, it would have been 475 or 500 if we hadn't gotten that little bit. But this is a has not been spotlighted at all. Shortly thereafter, a number of insurance companies, including the one that I was in, uh, uh, working for at the time and others, sued the federal government under that provision of the law and said, you owe us this money. This past spring, all the companies who stayed with it, the United States Supreme Court agreed. I've been, I left Blue Cross uh, January 1 of 2018. The suit was filed, uh, I think it was 16. Mm-hmm. We, Blue Cross Blue Shield of North Carolina, stayed with it all the way to the end. I don't know whether the check has arrived yet or not to the <laughs> current CFO, but what I do know is we won. And why did we win? We had a good legal case. Yeah. But we stayed with it. Sure. One said, yeah, we're going to sue the federal government. Sometimes that's a scary proposition to Mm -hmm. many people. It's the law. That's why the process is there. That's why the federal court of claims exists. Mm -hmm. And we stayed with it all the way to the end. And it took a long time. But I have to smile about the result. Good, good. Persistence. Those were, the, those were the intentions. I think. I think the, like you said, the, the politics of it messes messes things up a little bit. But I'm glad that you that you guys and probably uh, other organizations won those. Others did. I want to. I want to ask one thing about single payer, and then I want to just get your opinion on some stuff about the pandemic. Just while I have you, the people that were most against the ACA, I think their pitch was that this is going to lead to single payer. Right. Or that, that was that was their that was their I don't scare tactic or that was what they were putting out into the world. Sure. Just looking at this objectively, that by trying to crush the ACA as much as they did, what's happening is, is that you have a big coalition building, let's say, on the, on the left, that is even more forceful about single payer than they ever have been before. So by being so anti-ACA with no solid replacement plan, with no pitch to the American people that you could do this somewhat differently. It, it just makes me think that be careful what, what you wish for because you might you might end up with an administration one day, not now, that might be like, you know what, you don't want to work on solid, sensible healthcare reform, financial reform and protections where the private sector and the insurance companies are at the forefront of this, then we're just going to go full single payer. My, my question to you on single payer is, is that because I, I, I have private insurance, you know, I like my insurance and I think the ACA has done a lot of good for everybody. Is there a role ever in a country as diverse of ideas and just like diverse of people and the amount of people that we have for there to ever be a functioning single payer system? If there was, would it, would it be too much of a sacrifice to how many people work in the healthcare insurance space? I just curious your general thoughts on single payer because it's always a big topic, especially around election time. Certainly. Okay. So I'm going to give you the classic lawyer's answer. It depends. First of all, what do we mean by single payer? I'll just use some examples. Do we want to do it the way that the United Kingdom does it? That's one model of single payer. Mm -hmm. Or do we want to do it the way that France does it or Germany or Canada? Single payer is not, you can't look that up in a book 
and get a two-sentence definition that is universally applicable and that you can understand across the universe of, of those systems that are identified as single payer. I was fortunate enough during my leadership time at Blue Cross to actually travel to some of the countries that I've just mentioned with a group of colleagues. And we really did a deep dive, what I'll call the PhD course in a short period of time with the leaders of those organizations to understand how they work. And so one of the facts that I remember from my time in France, 93% of the French people have a, also have a private insurance health insurance policy. So what does that say to you? There is a robust private insurance healthcare market in France. Now, maybe that number has changed now, so don't hold me to it. But that's what it was at the time, because that's what they that's what they said. Well, what it works like is if you I'm going to oversimplify it. It's like a Medicare supplement. I have my universal plan because I'm on the ground in France, mm -hmm. and I can access the system through that. But there's lots and lots of things that that does not pay for. And if I don't want to pay for those things out of my pocket, then I'm going to need some insurance. Mm -hmm. So it's gap coverage. It's Medicare SUP. You call it what you will. And also the, the places that you go for care, the types of care that are covered at certain levels, there's little known fact, again, less the law has changed. Uh, under the French model, there is a copay. It, first of all, you're required to have a primary care physician. And if you fail to go to that primary care physician and you go straight to the specialist, then it's not going to be covered. That's a definition of the universal payer, all payer system in, mm -hmm. in France. But every time you go to your primary care, there's a copay. And if you go to a specialist, if referred to the specialist by the primary care, there is a higher copay. My point is, because I could go on for a long time about it, we need to as we advocate for what we want and what we think is better, we need to really understand what the bumper stickers mean. So is there a place in the United States for a single payer? It depends on what you mean by that, like Medicare for all. Okay, now what does that mean? It's easy to wrap your head around it, yeah. but now I'm on Medicare and so is my wife. It works well from our perspective, but everything is not covered. We still contribute to the cost of our health care. It's a whole lot less than it would otherwise be. Sure. But I think a lot of people hear that and think that it's going to be free. And by the way, and if you really examine the single payer systems that we've been talking about and others, there are lots and lots of things that aren't covered 100% where there is a contribution sure. to, to it. And so... What, Again, making lots of speeches around uh, when I was CEO on this very topic. One thing that we all need to understand, nothing is free. I don't care what you're talking about. <laughs> At the end of the day, somebody is going to, money is going to change hands and somebody is paying for it. And in a single payer model, let's pretend that we invented the perfect one. Yes. Everything is covered for everybody 100% of the time. It still has to be paid for. A dollar will have to leave your pocket and my pocket as taxpayers to go to a bank somewhere that will then be redistributed to those wonderful providers and to the pharmaceutical companies who are providing wonderful pharmaceuticals to keep us healthy and make us better. 
to be compensated for their services. And even if all of them were our government employees, state employees that we were talking about earlier, they're going to be paid. Mm -hmm. So we have to have the broad conversation about what, what is it that we want? What does that mean? Single payer mean? What does it look like? And how are we going to pay for it? I have always been an advocate that there is so much progress that we have made since March 23rd of 2010 that what that the reform should be reform something that i believe as i said earlier has never been seriously attempted and that we would be able to provide higher quality lower cost which includes lower premiums mm-hmm. most a lot of people hear healthcare costs and all they think about is the premium well if you if let's pause on that just a second very simply stated the health insurance premium is an average of the cost of actual of the actual health care over a pool of people plus whatever it takes to administer that plan. So if if you have really high health insurance premiums, yes, once we are all against fraud, waste, and abuse, mm-hmm. let's don't let's don't get distracted by that argument, but let's make sure that none of that's happening. And we all want low administrative costs. So let's let's assume for a minute that it's below 10%, which is a benchmark. If you're doing that, you're doing pretty well. Mm-hmm. Everything else is a collection of money that then goes out and pays someone for having done something in the healthcare system. So I would advocate reform the reform, leverage all the good things that are working, fix those things that are not, introduce new things that need to be introduced because 2021 looks different than 2010 in many, many regards. The evolution of healthcare, for example. And then let's do that and see how it continues to play out. Because, as you've already alluded to, polling still shows that 85% of Americans, 80-ish mm-hmm. and change, get their health care through their employer, and they like it. Yep. And so what kind of political lift is going to be necessary to blow that up? And I'm not saying that to be have a scary argument, but those are words that have been used to destroy that and completely replace it with something that's unknown to everybody. I think politically it's too, it's too hard of a lift. So I think a good rule of politics and the practice of democracy is through the art of compromise and hard work, you improve on things as much as you possibly can, get it done and move on. And in fact, that's how, why the, one of the reasons the ACA was enacted. It was enacted the way it was is because it was politically possible to do it. Mm-hmm. And if you haven't read, I recommend to you President Obama's first volume of his memoir where he talks about the ACA. Okay, well, you'll, you'll enjoy it. Um, I think you'll find that that's what he said. There was a political moment that needed to be taken care of. There you go. Taking advantage of or appropriately leveraged to get yeah. done what could be done. When's the next time a political party is going to have 60 seats, right, in the, US, in the United States Senate? Right. Um, and there's a whole nother conversation. Why should it yeah, why yeah. should it take sixty? But I know that's, that's a big topic for debate. That's a big well, there's a subject for you for another podcast. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. I love talking about the ACA because that's that's right around the time where I got really interested in politics and I was you know, I was I was getting into the weeds of it and I just think I think it's a it's a very fascinating time and a lot of good has come out of, of out of healthcare uh, out of the Affordable Care Act. And I know over the last few years it, I, when the new when the Trump administration took over, that's when we started seeing people lose their health care, 
which uh, people were losing their health care and costs were still going up and nothing nothing had, nothing good was coming out of it it was it was it was it was disheartening it was disheartening to see well let uh, me insert very quickly on that point and i don't want to be redundant no no go ahead but 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 yes think about what you just said people were lose lost their health care and they and they did or they could couldn't get into the system yeah those people are going to the hospital today and receiving services because they, under the law, they cannot be turned away. If you go to the hospital, you have no insurance. Because that's what people say. People would say to me, Alex, there, there is, you, you can go get free health care in America right now. You can go into a hospital if you get hit, 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 in the, you get, you get hit by a car or you break your leg, you go in, you get the services you need. You generally don't get turned away. But I, that money, someone, like you said, is paying for that. Right. It's showing up on the balance sheet of the hospital. If it's a public hospital, there would be some sort of tax subsidy that goes to the hospital, whether it's a state or a local. And then there are cash pay patients, very few. And then whatever the deficit is, when the hospital negotiates with an insurer, they negotiate a rate that they can make up their loss. Sure. So my, my point is, it's far more efficient economically, and it's more beneficial to the customer or the patient, which they're one and the same. To have, to have them a part of a rational system that is going to work both on the quality of the care that they're going to get and the cost of the care that they're going to get, rather than saying, let's keep them outside the system, every person for themselves, who will, in fact, make demands on the healthcare system when they need it. And they will be in a worse condition, a worse health status. They'll wait for the car wreck, metaphorically, before that they, it, because they can't afford it. And then it costs, it costs more. The quality, it, it, hitting the highest quality measures becomes more difficult. And then there, it gets paid for in, a, in what I think is a far less efficient way through yeah. what I've just described. And, and I always thought, I always thought as someone just trying to understand the basics of getting more people insured, the more people that are covered, the more people can then go see doctors and, and can, can try to catch things earlier if they've got coverage. Yeah. I would assume that in a hospital, hospital bills are so high is because you get someone who's uninsured that comes in and needs major, major stuff done because they didn't have insurance and they couldn't get stuff checked out yeah. years ago that could have been prevented, like a heart attack. Right. If they had seen a cardiologist years ago. Right. Sure. I'm, just thinking, I'm just thinking of the basics of it. They could have had EKGs done. They could have had their, their hearts checked and they could have not had a heart attack, you know, just to use a simple example. So it, it's just it's interesting. the general the general consensus of more people covered if done in an efficient manner, which is what, what we were talking about. It makes it makes logical sense. And it's a good thing to do. If you can make it work, it's a good thing to do. It's the right thing to do. Yeah, poor Richard told us a long time ago, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Mm -hmm. And it's always been true, but it's hard work. And we, we are where we are. I hope uh, that all people of goodwill will spend time learning as much as they can about this very complex uh, ecosystem that we currently have and think, think about what needs to be done, advocate to their representatives to do it, and then be persistent about it. Again, I think democracy works when you work at democracy. There's plenty of plenty of opportunity there. But I do believe, back to the, your fundamental point, there are millions of people.
that are in a better health status today for sure than they were pre-March 23rd of 2010. Again, as clunky as it can be, it's still progress. I love I love when the, some of the people get interviewed that are at political rallies or they're you they, you know you see them somewhere and someone says to them they're trying to be funny they're like they're like we want to repeal Obamacare and he goes they go well what about the ACA they're like no 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 we like that it's just so funny they're they're or the sign that says get the government out of my health care and the person holding the sign clearly is a Medicare recipient or or is a veteran <laughs> or is a veteran right right so so uh, anyway. You know, I, I, like for a lot of people, the pandemic threw me for a loop um, just because the big thing about the pandemic that got me when people were saying you could have the virus and not know it, you could have the virus, not know it and pass it. And that stuff, you know, was was hard for me to get my head around. it. You know, it scared me to, to, to do anything when when this first happened. But it seems like in the last few weeks, we're like at the start of the tunnel to, to potentially see our way out. I just saw before I got on this, uh, this podcast with you, I think it was FedEx has got a 40% increase next week in vaccine shipments. I saw some, don't quote me on that, I saw some number and the 100 million dose um, doses in the first 100 days was even a low ball that they think they're going to beat that. So what's the day going to look like when we feel like we can go back to 80, 90% normalcy? What, 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 what numbers do we need to see? Does there need to be a certain amount of people that are vaccinated, which leads to herd immunity, or is that is that what the, is that what people are waiting for? Um, doctors and scientists to say, you know what, enough of the country's been vaccinated, we can start to really try to get back to normal. Like, what's the signal that we should be looking for? Well, I'm not a clinician, so I'm not going to be qualified to answer your question to the degree of sophistication and clarity that uh, your listeners uh, deserve. But I'll give you my opinion. Yeah. I think it's a combination of what you just described. Let's think about the flu or any other uh, disease that we are comfortable with. When we get to the levels that the people that are now giving us accurate, I believe, accurate and transparent information about the state of affairs, including when it's safe, when they determine that that day is here, then we'll know it. So that's what I'm looking to. But I do think that uh, we don't necessarily have to wait till 85% of the population has been vaccinated. It'll be a combination of people that have been vaccinated, uh, people that have had it mm-hmm. and g- survived, got over it, which there's a lot of those folks. Uh, I think the psychological hurdle is when are we all going to feel, I've talked to my wife about this, let's pretend that tomorrow that the, the, the siren goes off and it says, okay, it's over. And, it, and, then that, and that's true. Just imagine that day. I wouldn't be sure if I should take my mask off. Right. Well, would we immediately book a cruise or jump on an airplane? No. We're going to have to adjust. Yeah. But I do agree with you. I think we can see a light at the end of a very long tunnel. I think that we have the opportunity as a country and as a world to extend that tunnel, if we get over enthusiastic too quickly, yeah. So, you know, they said in the United Kingdom, stay calm and carry on. Yeah. Uh, let's pace ourselves here. But I, I, the way it feels to me, is that by late summer, that we'll be closer to what we would call normal. Sure. Uh, but I think we're going to need to keep our mask in our pocket, or I know that I'm going to, regardless, for a good while yet. 
the Johnson and Johnson deployment is going to be huge. And I read the same thing you did. The <laughs> supply is going up yeah. as the demand continues to be high. And the, the deployment of the, the, the supply to the demand is getting better every day. The folks I talk to here in North Carolina, absolutely. Every day is a better day. Good. And uh, I think the fact that we're just going to have spring and summer weather and people can get outside, even if it's still only in their backyard, will be great, uh, a great therapeutic for all of us. I do think the pandemic has exposed to us lots of things that I hope that we are not going to waste the crisis and ignore the list, the to-do list that the pandemic has given us about our public health and other things. 100%. I have friends like everybody else does that don't want to take the vaccine. And the way I look at it is this, right? You got to go down a far rabbit hole to think that these vaccines and this pandemic was some type of I don't even want to go down that hole. Some type of setup and the vaccine. You know, people are skeptical. Let's just say you have skeptical of vaccines. The way I look at it is like this, right? You got to pick a side, right? You got to, and the side I pick in these situations are people like, talk to people like you. And I like to, if I'm, if I'm reading different, different uh, publications or I'm watching different media, I'm going with the side that historically has been right a lot and is obviously very bright. I think they're well-intentioned, so I'm going to go that side. Your conspiracy theory or your fear of the vaccine for whatever you heard from someone, you could be right, but I think my odds are much higher. I'm going to be okay because you, you have to pick a side in, in this right. crazy political world that we're in. I, want to I just wanted to close on two things. One is I, I wanted to just to hear a little bit of what you're doing now because obviously you have Wilson Strategic Consulting, which um, and I know you're working on a lot of exciting projects which is great and you have done so since you left Blue Cross Blue Shield. I was just curious if there's any one or two things that you're focusing on right now that you would, you would want to discuss that's kind of near and dear to you that you're excited about. Well, I've been uh, fortunate that yeah, since leaving Blue Cross, I've been able to engage in, in, a, in a wonderful set of diverse activities ranging from uh, academia to coaching and maybe a one-day consulting opportunity and some over a year or two period of time, uh, many with emerging companies. Uh, some with uh, more uh, mature technologies. Uh, I'm working with a couple of companies that are doing some really interesting things in the uh, mental health space. I think one tying it right to your pandemic question, that one thing that we have all learned, and the data says that as of like last June, for example, virtual care delivery for mental health in particular had increased 30% over the last 90 days from, from March uh, to June. What does that mean? That providers and patients are getting comfortable with that technology, driven by the, the need for access to healthcare. So I think that uh, watching and working with companies that's in the that are in the virtual care space uh, is a very exciting place to be right now, and I, I'm, I'm enjoying my work uh, work with them. I am doing some work with a company that's doing some interesting work in the Alzheimer's space. That is early prediction, the degree to which, if any, Alzheimer's may be a part of an individual's uh, life. Uh, and the list goes on and on. Uh, suffice it to say that the engagements that I have are innovative. Uh, my criteria has always been I, I have to believe in the team, the people, uh, know that they're in it for the right reasons. 
uh, to truly accelerate the transformation of healthcare, uh, not just look for a shiny object that might be attractive. Uh, there's nothing wrong with making money. Let's not apologize for that. Uh, but I'm looking for those companies that are, are, are driven, purpose-driven to make a material difference in the transformation of healthcare combined with a team of really bright, smart, energetic people of integrity that believe in the work uh, that they're doing. And there are lots of those opportunities out there, and I'm grateful for the ones that uh, I have. And I really do enjoy the academic work because it keeps me engaged with really bright young people that uh, give you all the confidence that the world is going to continue to be uh, an incredible and nice place to to live. And their energy is uh, invigorating to me. And I typically learn more from them than I'm able to, uh, to give to them, I'm sure. So that's a snapshot of what I'm doing. That's great to hear. And the one thing I want to ask before I forget is you mentioned that throughout your life, you read a lot of really good biographies that, that stuck with you. I'm a big reader. I don't know if you can see in the back. I got my little library back here. So I'm always looking for, for good books. Are there any, and I, and I like to read a lot of biographies. Over the past year or two, I've, I've read some good ones um, about all different types of figures, predominantly political figures. I read a really good book on FDR. I read a really good book on Richard Nixon. But are there any biographies that come to mind that, that you think would be worthwhile for, for me or anybody to take a look at? Well, yes, and I'll mention the author because uh, authors as well, uh, because uh, many authors I'll read about anything they write because I'm familiar with them and I know they do good work. But of course, if you haven't read uh, a team of rivals, to me that's a leadership book that happens to be a history book. That's yeah, I know that. That's that's the one about Lincoln, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah that's I, right. I want to read it. It's a big read. Well, and it's one that you can read and then have a diversion with, uh, you know, finish. Uh, uh, the Obama book at the simultaneous. It's not that you got to put your head down and plow through, but Doris Kearns Goodwin does a does a great job. Yeah, she's great. I, I, truly, I think it is a it is a leadership book. And I talk to university classes. I get this question, and when I'm talking about leadership, which I do with some regularity, and I will point to that. That is a book about leadership, and you need to read it with that eye. Sure. As well as reading the chronological history and the political dynamics of the time. I'm a big fan of John Meacham. Oh, um, and I, I think that his book of uh, President Bush the first yeah. is extraordinary. Again, I, I just got chill bumps thinking about the book, but about everything that John uh, Meacham writes, I, I read. I read yeah. a very good biography of, um, of uh, Woodrow Wilson a number oh. of years ago, written by John Cooper which I also thought was a, was a leadership book as well as a well-written a narrative history of, of his life and, and his presidency. I'm currently reading a, a biography of Beethoven, uh, which is completely out of character for me because I'm not a musician, but it is the 250th anniversary, uh, Beethoven's 250th anniversary, and uh, I've learned a lot, and it's a quite intriguing and fascinating. I wouldn't say it's a leadership book, Mm-hmm. But it's taught me a lot about music. And the next thing I'm just ready to pick up, and I can't wait to get to it, is the recent biography of uh, Malcolm X Okay, uh, that the, the Paines did. It got some airtime a couple of months ago when it first came out because of uh, uh, the death of Les Payne before the publication of the book. Uh, I'm listening to a podcast called Words Matter. And uh, just yesterday, they had a segment on Malcolm X, where you actually hear some of the speeches that he made in 1964. 
And so it's a nice warm up for this um, this biography of a figure that I really don't know that much about. I read his book back in the day when I was yeah. in high school, but that's the last time I've really given much thought about Malcolm X and the whole civil rights movement from that context. I'll close with this as another good leadership. It's an article uh, yeah. that I would recommend to you. I think it was in the New York Times. But when you're in charge, your whisper is a shout. And the title says it all. One thing that I learned as I went moved through my career, I'm not a big fan of titles, but they're necessary in, in an org chart. That the more the bigger your title and the more the more uh, authority that you either have, real or perceived, the more impactful your words are all the time, every time. And that article puts a really good perspective on the importance of being careful and clear when you are in positions that of authority where your decision and your voice can take up more space sometimes than you really intend for it to and the ramifications of that on an organization or an individual. I could go on, but I'll stop with those. And you motivated me to find Happy reading. (laughs) Yeah, you've motivated me to to finally brave a team of rivals. I've I've got it on my Amazon, like a wish list, because I look at it, but I'm always like, I'll get to that later. I might finally give it a go. Well, I think it'll be like uh, eating uh, potato chips if you do. Once you have a couple of them, you'll you'll keep going. But uh, it is a book that you can put down and come back to and not feel disadvantaged because it, you wanted to spend some time somewhere else. Yeah, Lincoln was on the other day. Every time it's on, I just watch it because it's, you know, he's it's, it's such an unbelievable, it's an unbelievable film. It's unbelievable acting in the story, which I know some of that is pulled from that book. Um, yes. Is uh is quite fascinating, Brad. Thank you so much. I enjoyed this thoroughly. You you've led such an incredible life, and you've done so so such good work. Um, at times where, especially in the role that you were in at Blue Cross Blue Shield, you know nobody would have begrudged you for 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 not going down the route that you did, which other people did, because you know you can't begrudge people for wanting to make sure that you know profit is part of running a business, but you were able to manage to do both, which is a great legacy you left there and you continue to do good work right now. And I really appreciate getting a chance to talk to you. I think our listeners are going to really like this one, getting to know you personally and getting to know what you've done and what you're continuing to do. And I hope you're not a stranger. I hope we can do a part two to this sometime in the future. Well, I look forward to that opportunity. You've been overly generous in your conclusion. And I'm very fortunate to, as I've said earlier, to be the beneficiary of a supportive family, wonderful colleagues, uh, who really deserve all the credit for any co- small contributions that I may have been able to make. But I'm grateful for the opportunity to be with you and your listeners. Thanks, and uh, stay well. Last thing, last thing, being a North Carolina guy, are you Wake Forest or are you Duke UNC? Because I know you've got, you have some allegiance to UNC. So like, what's the team? What's your team? Okay. So yeah, that's an important question. So like when you're in Alabama, is it Alabama or Auburn? So I also have a master's degree from Duke. Oh, okay, I didn't know that. So my two ACC teams are Wake Forest and Duke. Okay. I'm a big college football fan, uh, and uh, uh, Appalachian State has a wonderful football program. Many people know. And uh, so we spend a lot of time uh, in the fall and in Boone at Appalachian, and when there we can't see them play, we'll be in Winston-Salem, and then when we can't see them play, Durham is just next door, so it's easy to run over and, and watch that. And, of course – Basketball is still king here in North Carolina, although this pandemic time is 
really disrupted everything. But uh, yeah, there's my declaration. So it's uh, Wake Forest and Duke. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I, I'm a big college basketball fan myself. I'm a University of Connecticut fan. I've always had a soft spot for Roy Williams. I'm not. Oh, like Roy a- Williams is fabulous. You know, he's from Marion, North Carolina, and he did so well at Kansas and uh, and now at now at UNC. And you talk about an authentic and genuine leader. Yeah, I like him. Roy Williams is uh, is uh, the personification of that. There's something about him. I don't know if there's a book on him. I would read it, but there's something about him that I've always really liked. I've always thought. I've always clung to it as a, as a coach, even though UConn has owned Duke um, in the in the tournament over the years. Yeah, that's right. That's but, right. Well, that's good basketball. Well, in the women's basketball at Connecticut, <laughs> I wish I paid more attention. I, I would feel better about being a fan because the men's program is not doing too well. But I'll let you go. Brad, thank you okay, so much. Okay, well, until next time, thank you until for the opportunity. Time. I hope there's a part two. Thank you so much. Okay. All right. Take care. Thanks for listening. And be sure to check out our other episodes. You can listen on Apple, Google, or Spotify. Be sure to subscribe. And for more information, you can visit mill-all.com.